Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. Child and adolescent healthcare providers are increasingly caring for patients who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or other, LGBTQ+, or who may be struggling with or questioning their sexual orientation or gender identity. Although these patients have the same health concerns as their non-LGBTQ plus peers, LGBTQ plus adolescents and teens may face additional challenges because of the complexity of the coming out process, as well as societal discrimination and bias against sexual and gender minorities. In today's episode of Neural Pathways, we're discussing care for LGBTQ plus adolescents and teens in today's practice. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. I'm very pleased to have Dr. Jason Lambrizi join me for today's conversation. Dr. Lambrizi is a child and adolescent psychiatrist in the Center for Behavioral Health in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. Jason, welcome to Neuropathways. Thanks so much for having me. So Jason, let's get started. Ensuring high quality care for LGBTQ plus youth requires providers to understand principles of caring for LGBTQ plus individuals. Can you start the conversation by discussing some of the primary mental health issues facing LGBTQ plus adolescents particularly? Absolutely. The things we really are keeping an eye on primarily are depression, and anxiety. And with depression comes the risk for uh, suicidal thoughts or actions. And so we're really wanting to be mindful of this risk in all of our adolescents, but we do see a heightened risk for depression, suicidality in LGBTQ youth. So other issues other than the depression or suicide ideation, is it anything else? And those are the primary ones. The other things that we do think about as well can be things like eating disorders. Um, we do see an increased risk for eating disorders in sort of various subsets of the LGBTQ plus sort of youth population and a potential risk for substance use, um, both sort of using substances more regularly, more in a sort of binge pattern, as well as initiating substances at a younger age. You know, I was listening to the clinic staff meeting this morning. They were talking about covid and concerns about the social isolation and increase in um, drinking and and, uh, drug use in general. Do you see that uh, over the past year with COVID in this population, or has it really not changed much? Yeah, and we're really seeing sort of the social isolation as being really challenging for, I mean, for for all of us over the last year, it's been hard, but particularly for youth, where such a a primary sort of goal of being uh, a young person is those social connections. And through adolescence, it's really sort of forming those social bonds and figuring out who we are in the world. And it's hard to figure out who we are in the world if we're sort of stuck inside. And so we do see that isolation from peers really start to take its negative toll. And with that can lead to increased depression from being inside, increased rates of substance use. So we have seen that come up as well. And it's been a tough year for everyone. So why are we seeing higher rates of depression, suicidality in this patient population particularly? Yeah, it's a good question because there's nothing inherent in being LGBTQ plus that leads someone to be more likely to have depression or anxiety or suicidal ideation. 
a lot of it really gets explained sort of through the minority stress model. The idea being that we sort of living as a minority of any type, and in this sort of situation when thinking about a sexual or gender minority, living as a minority in the world um, is really tough. There are constant sort of stresses that we're facing on a day-to-day basis, whether it's at school, at home, at work, or in our communities. And that constant or chronic level of stress takes its toll after a while. There's a sort of psychological as well as physiological stress that we experience. And so the sort of thought is that that constant exposure to stress without maybe a high level of support, sort of that imbalance of stress and supports leads to a vulnerability to depression. And then comparing that with isolation and lack of support system can lead to a lot of despair and distress that can then lead to some of the suicidal thoughts or actions. Could you comment on bullying? Yeah, bullying is a huge issue. So we're seeing when Folks are sort of in a school system where they don't feel they can be themselves. They're feeling they're being targeted or discriminated against, that that takes its toll as well. So it's challenging. We see sort of for these LGBTQ plus youth, we see that primarily at home and at school, and there's such a risk that either environment might not be supportive. So if they're in sort of school and they're getting bullied and teased, you can start to internalize that because usually that's happening at the same time that somebody's trying to figure out who they are and trying to understand themselves. They're going through normal adolescent development, trying to figure out who they are and their identities of all sorts. And that includes a sexual and gender identity. So they're trying to figure that out. At the same time, they're being told that who they are, who they appear to be, um, is bad. So they're hearing sort of direct derogatory comments from their peers in the form of bullying. They're internalizing that saying, I'm trying to figure out who I am. Everyone else is saying I'm bad. It must be true that I am bad, that how I'm feeling is a bad thing, is negative. And that then can lead to sort of this internalized homophobia that youth can have, where they're really starting to believe this themselves, that actually how they're feeling is wrong and is bad. And so then that can lead to, well, if I'm a bad person, what's the point of staying alive anymore? And then that can sort of uh, lead very quickly and easily to suicidal thoughts. Yeah, I really, it really hits home uh, when you tell me that it is not innate, uh, because then it really sort of makes all of us responsible for that. That's absolutely right. I think it's something that if folks live sort of in a society, in a world that was totally accepting of all sorts of sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions, there wouldn't be a whole lot of stress. And folks could just develop and be and express who they are comfortably. And I suspect that would lead to a much reduced rate of depression and suicidal ideation and bring it much more to the maybe level of their peers, this level of depression sort of in the world for lots of reasons. But that extra sort of piece of it is often sort of societally based. So we see that at school with bullying. And we see that in homes. A lot of these youth are not being supported by their families when they come out. And so they may be rejected. They're even being kicked out of their homes. We're seeing LGBTQ youth overrepresented in the homeless youth population. And so that's tough. Again, if you have a hard sort of home life, but school is a supportive environment or vice versa, a lot of bullying in school, but your home is supportive, that can sometimes help cope to sort of get through uh, the adolescent years. But if you're getting rejected at home and bullied at school, that's a, a real recipe for negative outcomes. Yeah, so lots of food for thought. And I guess we all just need to be better people. Absolutely. So would you say that the needs of the LGBTQ adolescents are being met in today's healthcare practice or not? 
I think we're getting there. I think we are just by having these conversations more and more sort of normalizing these conversations that we're really opening the door for providers to be aware of the needs of LGBTQ youth. We're seeing that there's more and more education happening from the level of medical students up to sort of residents and fellows to even sort of continuing professional development. So we're realizing as providers there's a lot we need to know. So I think as we're increasing our education of healthcare providers, that's allowing sort of better care. But we're sort of in that in the middle of it right now, where we're sort of actively working towards. I think we're starting to see some of the fruits of that. But I think there's still a lot more we could do, including very small things that could really sort of help us be more open and supportive of this population. So in terms of clinical management, can you discuss the current standard of care being provided in today's practice and how that differs from the non-LGBTQ plus adolescents? Yeah, so I think it's important that a lot of it is the same, right? A lot of the care we're providing is the same sort of care we provide sort of to all of our patients. LGBTQ plus folks are coming in with headaches and belly aches just like everybody else where there are certain things that we do want to be mindful of. So part of it is opening up the dialogue for folks to talk about any struggles they might be having around sexuality or gender. Um, But the other piece of it is specifically around care for transgender or gender nonconforming youth. There are certain standards of care that we do abide by, and that's through the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, publishes the standards of care that talks about the kind of care that these all of these patients, including youth or adults, sort of may need in terms of mental health care, medical care in terms of hormone therapy or other gender affirming therapies or surgeries. And so we really do try to sort of use those um, internationally accepted and published standards to make sure that we're providing the specific care that's needed for transgender youth or youth with gender dysphoria to help them feel more comfortable themselves and help their bodies more align with their gender identities. So are there barriers that providers face when treating LGBTQ adolescents? Yeah, I think the biggest barrier is even just having the conversation. You know, we see that it's hard on the part of the provider and the part of the patient to sort of maybe initiate the conversation about um, just even coming out to your provider, letting the, the, whether it's a pediatrician or child psychiatrist, letting that sort of um, healthcare provider know that you are thinking about or struggling with gender and sexuality or identify as LGBTQ+. There's a study done now, it's over 10 years old, but it sort of looked at pediatricians and ask them, you know, how often are you talking to your youth about sexual orientation? Only about a third of pediatricians at that point said that they will initiate the conversation with their patients around sexual orientation. They really said, I just, I don't know how to bring it up. I don't know sort of what to do if they say yes. I don't know the resources that are out there. And the same thing asked the youth. Well, how often are you coming out to the provider? And same thing as about a third are coming out. But interestingly, two thirds wanted to come out but only a third did. And the number one reason that that extra third didn't actually come out was the doctor never asked me. So really patients sort of see that the onus is on us as the provider to be the one starting these conversations. And so I think a huge barrier is even just provider comfort in bringing this up, like any sort of more sensitive topic. As psychiatrists, we see a lot of those sort of sensitive conversations happening in our office and that can put patients in a very vulnerable position, talking about sexuality, talking about substance use, suicidal thoughts, trauma. Um, It sort of can fit under that umbrella. So I think we need to give providers the tools to allow them to feel more comfortable just opening the door to allow this conversation to happen. So Jason, are there things that providers can do to make their office space more acceptable for adolescents? 
Yeah. And that I think is one of the key things. So we can do whatever as much as possible from the provider standpoint to be open, to have these conversations, to be competent, supportive. But there's a lot that happens from when they sort of pick up the phone to call our office to actually showing up in the exam room with me. So they can be nowadays is looking at our website and searching for us and seeing, you know, does our practice actually talk about that LGBTQ health is a specialty of theirs? And it should be something that if we're saying it's specialty, we should have at least some training to be able to provide that care. When they walk into the waiting room, are they seeing any sort of visible signs of sort of LGBTQ plus support? That could be a little safe zone sticker, a rainbow flag, a flyer for the local LGBT community center. Folks will pick up on these small things. When they sit down and fill out the intake form, how are the questions asked there? Is there only an M and an F option for somebody's gender? Or can there be sort of a gender of the line or multiple options to pick from? For our kids, when it asks for contact info for mom and dad, instead of mom and dad, can it say parent one and parent two to allow for folks who may have two moms, two dads, or only one or the other? Um, how can we make sure that it's more than just single married or divorced? We want to make sure we sort of have our forms and our waiting rooms be visibly supportive, and that all of our staff that we're working with are sort of feeling competent in this area as well. So when the nurse comes out to the waiting room to room the patient, that they're using the patient's preferred name, that there's some way in the chart or medical record to indicate a patient's preferred name. So that right from the start, the first address is using their preferred name. So I think really visibility, just small things, like I said, a small sticker or poster, or I have different buttons on my lanyard that sort of say what my pronouns are, or a small rainbow button. Those are little things that people will pick up on and have commented to me on why I saw that that button was there. I saw that you had a sticker or a poster on your wall for the LGBT center. That's really cool that you sort of are um, showing that support. So people pick up on those small um, sort of visual uh, representations of support and allow them really from the start just to feel more comfortable walking into the office. Jason, that was really great information. So you seem an optimist to me. Uh, are we seeing improvements in overall care for the LGBTQ uh, group? I really like to think that we are. I think that we're seeing more and more um, providers who are seeking out this sort of education, who are recognizing that um, this is a need. In that level of medical students, I'm working with a lot of medical students now and trying to just improve the educational um, experience sort of from first-year med school. I think there's a lot happening at the grassroots level, but I think there's also a lot more we can do. I do hear stories of folks who are showing up at a primary care provider's office. And when they come out to that provider, they say, oh, you should go to the LGBT clinic. And maybe they should, and maybe that's appropriate for the care that they need, but maybe it's not necessary. Not everybody needs to go to an LGBT clinic for their medical or mental health care. Folks will to seek care close to home. So I think that there is still a bit of a discomfort on the part of providers. And it's in some ways easy to be able to send folks to the LGBT clinic and not sort of own some of that themselves. And to me, that's going to be the pro and con of having some of these extra services. So how do we make sure we provide really good care in an LGBT clinic, but then allow that to permeate to all the practices and all the providers in an area to make sure everyone has a sort of basic level of competence and comfort. So I think we're getting there. I'd like to believe that we're getting there. Maybe I need to believe that we're on that path, but um, I do think we've got some room to go. Can you share some insights on how your team has evolved LGBTQ care at the Cleveland Clinic specifically? 
Yeah, so um, we have the Center for LGBT Care that's mostly based at the Lakewood Family Health Center. And within the center, we're providing care for youth and adults. So I primarily work on the pediatric team. And we have sort of services for all LGBTQ plus youth, but we have really sort of developed and expanded our team for transgender and gender nonconforming youth. So that's our guide team, which is our acronym for gender understanding, identity, and expression. And it's a team that includes pediatric mental health providers, including psychiatrists and psychologists, as well as medical providers, including adolescent medicine and endocrinology. So we've really, over the last few years, have really built up a care path that allows for folks coming in to get support around sort of uh, coming out. And I'll say the support is often around sort of for the youth and for the families who may be in the midst of this sort of process and this journey, how we're making sure we're providing them early on in the journey. Folks may be at the point of wanting to explore gender-affirming hormone therapy. And so they'll often be with the mental health provider to have that conversation and really explore what that means for them. And then we will link them up with our different medical providers who can provide that care. And then as folks sort of become adults, um, we do have a really good relationship with the adult gender team where we can make sure care transfers really smoothly from pediatric to adult care. So I think it's great that the Cleveland Clinic has such a robust like, array of services for pediatric and adults in terms of mental health, medical care, and for adult surgical care. So Jason, are there instances where a provider should be referring a patient to an LGBTQ plus provider, or uh, are there instances where they can manage the patient themselves? Yeah, you know, I think for me, the biggest part of it is sort of how comfortable does that provider feel in providing that care? And that may just be sort of having that conversation. It may just be sort of learning more about what the concerns or questions that the youth has. And then they may be that they do need sort of mental health services, or they do they do have questions about gender-affirming hormone therapy. That may be sort of out of the sort of realm of the comfort zone of that provider. Um, or it may be that they sort of need services for uh, sexual health and they don't feel comfortable providing it. So I think a lot of LGBT care is actually is primary care, but it takes sort of the provider knowing where their line is to say, this I feel comfortable and competent to sort of provide this care and this feels a little bit beyond me. So it should be that, it shouldn't always be an automatic referral. There should be some level of comfort that every provider should have in starting these conversations, but they may feel like the sort of uh, the, the needs that they have are just sort of more than I can provide. I think oftentimes a lot of it comes around treatment for gender dysphoria. And so linking up with the more specialized gender team, I think is really helpful because they can often provide some of the medical and mental health sort of wraparound uh, care that the, the youth could benefit from. So I'd like to sort of go back to the family support. Um, I think if I just think about my life and uh, friends that I know that have gone through this, you know, it's very tough on the families and it's very tough on parents. And I think that the parents don't quite understand how to deal with it. What can we offer to the families? I think it really is just that. It's a recognition that this is a process for everyone. And that can sometimes be hard for the young person who often... When I'm working with families for the first time, oftentimes the young person, after they come out, they're usually a few steps ahead of their parents in terms of understanding sort of where they're at on this journey. And I call that out and I want to recognize that because I always tell the young person, for the, 
for when you made the decision to come out, you've been thinking about this for a while for yourself to really know for sure this is who I am and I'm confident enough in who I am to be able to tell other people. And so it's a lot of, of sort of mental energy and thought that you put into this. So you're already a few steps ahead of the game by the point of coming out. You've been thinking about this for a while. Your parents may have had this on their mind and they may not have. Take me very well back at step one. And so what can we do to help make sure that we're supporting both the youth and the parents sort of in this journey along the way? So it's, it's allowing parents to have a reaction. It's allowing them to be able to sort of say what some of their concerns are. You know, parents have had sort of a, a conceptualization of their kid from before they were born in terms of what they were going to be doing in their lives. They're planning their weddings out. I mean, we have this sort of image. And when that image shifts because of what we know about our child really can fundamentally change, um, that can be hard for parents. And I think we need to allow them that space to process that and to potentially even mourn the loss of what they imagined their child's sort of future life to be. But I always tell parents, you may sort of be losing the son that you had, but now you have this daughter. And so it's a morning, but it's a morning of an idea or the morning of a person because that person is still here um, and they're still, and they are actually more open with you now that they've come out. You're actually seeing more and more of who they really are. So allowing that space, but then allowing them to be open to hear from their child really who they are. And I think those conversations can be tough, um, but making sure that we really try to facilitate a space where there's an open dialogue between the young person and the parent and often with the counselor. I think it's really beneficial for kids to be in longer-term psychotherapy or counseling with someone who is knowledgeable about LGBTQ plus issues so they can provide support to the young person as they explore who they are in this journey, but also provide support to the parents and provide a space for these conversations to happen. A lot of parents find it helpful to talk to other parents or families going through a similar process. So may link them up with community services um, who um, may be able to sort of talk with them and they can hear that perspective from other parents who are going through this. That can often be super helpful and powerful. So what percentage of patients get actively involved in some type of therapy with their child and what percent should? Now, I would say, I think for most people, I would say most or all, I think there's a benefit to counseling. To me, the counseling is not to, it's really not to change who the young person is, but to provide them the support and tools they need to really sort of grow and blossom as who they are in as comfortable a way as possible. So I think to me, there's very little downside or side effect to counseling. It's such a helpful space to provide that exploration. And I think more and more people are doing that, but I get a bit of a, the people who are seeing me are already sort of taking that step to come into the office to talk about it. I think there are probably a lot more people who are not yet at the point of coming into the psychiatrist's office or coming into sort of the gender team to be having these conversations. I think there's a lot of folks who are just maybe so uncomfortable with this idea of they're shutting the conversation down from the start. So I do think that there probably are many folks who don't have access to services, either because there's, they live in a place where maybe there are few counselors in general, let alone anybody who's maybe um, knowledgeable about LGBTQ health. They may not have the health insurance that allows them to access the counseling. 
They may not have the transportation to get there. Their parents may not think it's important or relevant, or the young person may not feel comfortable talking to their parents about it to even let them know they need the counseling. So it can be a lot of barriers, both sort of psychologically as well as logistically to make that happen. But I think if there are ways that we can creatively get someone linked with the counselor, and nowadays, with everything being so virtual, that's been a real positive for me that folks who I work with who are not living sort of in and around the Cleveland area um, have access to counselors or access even to our team that may be sort of further away, but that can uh, engage with us virtually. So taking down that uh, geographical barrier, I think really will open up services for a lot of these families. But it seems like the driver needs to be the adolescent. Is that right? Yeah, that's sort of... The adolescent needs to sort of start the conversation to let the parent know, but the parent needs to be there ready to sort of hear that and ready to provide support from the star. And I often tell parents, you don't need to know the answer. We don't even know what your child's final sort of destination is going to be on this journey. All you need is to be supportive. Let your kid know that you love them. Let your kid know that you will support them on this journey. Those really sort of small, basic things are actually so important. When an adolescent comes out as gay or lesbian or as transgender, there is such a fear of what the reaction is going to be. Unfortunately, there are many youth who do, at that point, get rejected by their families. So if a parent doesn't know and doesn't know the right answer and doesn't sort of know what the next steps are and they're just pressing it themselves, just saying, I'm here for you. I'm figuring this out with you and I love you. That's an important step right then and there because that kid needs to hear that because they they question that in that moment because that fear and anxiety can really take over. So Jason, before we sound off, would you like to provide any additional insights for providers treating LGBTQ patients? To me, I think the most important things for providers are start the conversation, figure out a way that you feel comfortable bringing up these topics and do it universally. The more we do it on a regular basis, the more comfortable we feel sort of having these conversations and know what the resources are. So if a person does tell you that they're struggling with gender identity or sexual orientation, you can provide them some support in that moment, whether it's a conversation in your office, information about the local counseling center, or information about the local LGBT community center. So start, figure out a way to start the conversation and have some resources available um, for when a youth uh, does come out to you. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jason. Yeah, thanks so much. This concludes this episode of Neuro Pathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our ConsultQD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. And thank you for listening.